Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to episode 23 of Destination Disaster. I am your host, Devin Carney. The episode that we are discussing this week hits very close to home. Well before I was born and in a time of global unrest, the 1989 recession was finally beginning to recover. However, unemployment hovered at around 7.4% and many large corporations experienced losses that totaled in the billions. Also during this period, 39 coalition nations engaged in a campaign against Iraq in response to their invasion of Kuwait. While I was not alive during this period, my father was and fought during this campaign guarding some of the oil wells that we're ultimately going to discuss on this episode. The ensuing battle and subsequent ignition of the Kuwaiti oil wells would lead to some serious health complications that would affect thousands in the decades that have passed since the Gulf War. To preface, I served in the U.S. Army Reserve for eight years, so please forgive me if some of the Marine, Naval, or Air Force terminology I discussed today comes out incorrectly or is pronounced differently than you are used to. The Persian Gulf War was a swift campaign led by the United States and 39 coalition nations following Iraq's invasion of Kuwait. While this war didn't witness the casualties that many others have experienced, I will not downplay this, and in fact, any American death is too many. In total, the Persian Gulf War between both Desert Shield and Desert Storm saw 382 deaths, and when broken out between the branches, the Army saw 224, the Marines 68, the Navy 55, and the Air Force 35. Consisting of two phases, the first, codenamed Operation Desert Shield, which lasted from August 2, 1990, till January 17, 1991. And the second phase, codenamed Operation Desert Storm, commenced with one of the largest aerial bombardments in history. Operation Desert Shield was the build-up and pre-deployment phase of all coalition forces. The operation began on August 7, 1990, when U.S. troops were sent to Saudi Arabia, due also to the request of its monarch, King Fahd, who earlier had called for U.S. military assistance. This holy defensive doctrine was quickly abandoned when, on August 8, Iraq declared Kuwait to be Iraq's 19th province, and Saddam named his cousin Ali Hassan al-Majid as its military governor. The U.S. Navy dispatched two naval battle groups built around the aircraft carriers USS Dwight D. Eisenhower and the USS Independence to the Persian Gulf, where they were ready by August 8th. The U.S. also sent the battleships USS Missouri and USS Wisconsin to the region. A total of 48 U.S. Air Force F-15s from the 1st Fighter Wing at Langley Air Force Base, Virginia, landed in Saudi Arabia and immediately commenced round-the-clock air patrols of the Saudi-Kuwait-Iraq border to discourage further Iraqi military advances. They were joined by 36 F-18ADs from the 36th Tactical Fighter Wing in Bitburg, Germany. The Bitburg contingent was based at Alkarj Air Base, approximately an hour southeast of Riyadh. The 36th Tactical Fighter Wing would be responsible for 11 confirmed Iraqi Air Force aircraft shot down during the war. Two Air National Guard units were stationed at Alkarj Air Base. 
the South Carolina Air National Guard's 169th Fighter Wing flew bombing missions with 24 F-16s flying 2,000 combat missions and dropping 4 million pounds of munitions. And the New York Air National Guard's 174th Fighter Wing flew 24 F-16s on bombing missions. Military buildup continued from there, eventually reaching 543,000 troops, twice the number used in the 2003 invasion of Iraq. Much of the material was airlifted or carried to the staging areas via fast sea lift ships, allowing for a quick buildup. As part of the buildup, amphibious exercises were carried out in the Gulf, including Operation Imminent Thunder, which involved the USS Midway and 15 other ships. 1,100 aircraft and 1,000 Marines in a press conference, General Schwarzkopf stated that these exercises were intended to deceive the Iraqi forces. In a press conference, General Schwarzkopf stated that these exercises were intended to deceive the Iraqi forces forcing them to continue their defense of the Kuwaiti coastline. Commencing with an aerial bombardment on January 16, 1991, this marked a new phase named Operation Desert Storm. This aerial campaign was aimed at destroying the military infrastructure of Iraq. During this campaign alone, over 100,000 missions were flown and over 88,000 tons of bombs were dropped. This is one of the largest air campaigns ever flown in military history. The Gulf War began with an extensive aerial bombing campaign on 16 January 1991. For 42 consecutive days and nights, the coalition forces subjected Iraq to one of the most intensive air bombardments in military history. The coalition flew over 100,000 sorties, dropping 88,500 tons of bombs, which widely destroyed military and civilian infrastructure. The air campaign was commanded by United States Air Force Lieutenant General Chuck Horner, who briefly served as U.S. Central Command's Commander-in-Chief forward while General Schwarzkopf was still in the U.S. Following the intense aerial bombardment, the ground offensive began less than a month later. Due to the sheer success of the aerial bombardment, the ground campaign to liberate Kuwait only lasted 100 hours. During this period is when Iraq attempted to split the coalition forces by firing Scud missiles into Iran. Luckily, President George H.W. Bush was able to reason with the Iranian government to not retaliate in fear it would cause even further division amongst the coalition. In total, nearly 700,000 U.S. troops would be deployed to the region to support Operation Desert Storm. War can have significant implications on the environment and surrounding communities. The scale at which the environmental devastation committed by Saddam's forces has yet to be matched to this very day. Another staggering impact this war had was the effect on developing countries' economies. Apart from the impact on the Arab states of the Persian Gulf, the resulting economic disruptions after the crisis affected many states. The Overseas Development Institute, or the ODI, undertook a study in 1991 to assess the effects on developing states and the international community's response. A briefing paper finalized on the day that the conflict ended draws on their findings which had two main conclusions. Many developing states were severely affected, and while there was a considerable response to the crisis, the disruption of assistance was highly selective. After a quick break, we are going to discuss the environmental implications that the Persian Gulf War had, and if those implications are still being felt to this very day. This includes the Kuwait oil fires, the Gulf oil spill, and the use of depleted uranium shells in tank kinetic energy penetrators. We'll be right back after a quick message. The Kuwait oil fires were caused by the Iraqi military setting fire to 700 oil wells as part of a scorched earth policy while retreating from Kuwait in 1991 after conquering the country but being driven out by coalition forces. The fire started in January and February 1991, and the last one was extinguished by November. 
Ceasefires burned relentlessly for months following the armed conflict between both Iraqi and coalition forces. Fire crews were unable to be sent in due to the sheer danger. In addition to the uncertain landscape, Iraqi forces also planted landmines near and around the oil wells. Somewhere around 6 million barrels of oil were lost each day. Eventually, privately contracted crews extinguished the fires at a total cost of $1.5 billion to Kuwait. By that time, however, the fires had burned for approximately 10 months, causing widespread pollution. Pollution is still evident to this very day, with contaminated soil still exposed to the environment. Most of the damage was sustained within the Burgan oil fields in the southern deserts of Kuwait, an arid land 500 square kilometers wide housing more than 100 contaminated oil lakes. At one particularly badly affected oil lake known as Lake 105, images show meters-wide circles of black sludge. Smoke from these fires also released dangerous amounts of soot, carbon dioxide, and sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere. It is estimated that 355,000 tons of oil and gas burned, 24,000 tons of sulfur dioxide was released into the atmosphere per day, and in total, the amount of carbon dioxide released was between 130 to 140 million tons, or 2-3% of the global anthropogenic contribution from fossil fuel utilization. The Persian Gulf War also saw the employment of a new type of tank shell. Depleted uranium shells were also employed during this war. While not significantly radioactive to those in proximity to an intact piece of ordnance, these penetrators once fired from tanks would ultimately release the depleted uranium dust that could be then breathed in and then would sit in the lung cavities, potentially damaging cells that could lead to cancer in the future. These actions would lead to several studies being conducted to identify the true toll on human life. While depleted uranium contains 40% less radioactivity, that shouldn't be the true defining factor when employing these types of weapons. According to British Army doctors and the Ministry of Defense, Army doctors warned four years ago in 1996 that exposure to depleted uranium, which is used in U.S. and British anti-tank shells, increased the risk of developing lung, lymph, and brain cancer. Its publicly stated view is that there is a potential but extremely small risk from soluble depleted uranium, a toxic chemical that could damage the kidneys. Studies conducted on the use of depleted uranium are still relatively sparse. While the U.S. reports that none of its service members from the Persian Gulf War have experienced any form of cancers, the depleted uranium dust that is inhaled can take decades to damage cells and lead to the cancers stated earlier. And finally, we're going to talk about the worst action that Iraqi forces took to prohibit the American forces from landing in Kuwait. The Gulf oil spill was perpetrated by Iraqi forces in a last-ditch attempt to prevent American forces from landing in Kuwait. It was revealed that in a last-ditch attempt to prevent U.S. forces from landing on the beaches of Kuwait, Iraqi forces intentionally dumped oil into the Persian Gulf. They released oil from eight oil tankers, a refinery, two terminals, and a tank field. Since the Iraqis anticipated an amphibious invasion, they also dug long trenches down the coastline and filled them with oil. The entire act of environmental terrorism released a total of 11 million barrels of crude oil into the Gulf, resulting in the largest oil spill in history. For the next three months, oil continued to spill into the Gulf at a rate of up to 6,000 barrels per day. Oil spills have disastrous effects on the marine environments in which they occur. In addition to killing off marine life, suffocation of those who live on the surface, and they can even contaminate those species who live in proximity to the oil spill. The Gulf oil spill was particularly nasty due to the sheer amount of oil that covered the water. It is estimated that over 1 million tons of oil was released by oil carriers, refill stations, and land-based operations. The oil traveled throughout the Persian Gulf and inhabited beaches in Bahrain, Iran, and Qatar. While not as affected as Saudi Arabia, these countries still experienced an environmental crisis. In Saudi Arabia, however, the effects of the oil spill were devastating to say the least. 
The oil on the Saudi Arabian coastline ended up in shallow lagoons, wetlands, and flats covered with vegetation. Here, the oil caused considerable damage and caused primarily by the physical characteristics of the oil on the vegetation and on animals in the intertidal zone. Hence, most of the mangroves and marshes in the wetlands along the affected coast were destroyed by the oil. 50 to 90% of the fauna in these areas were killed by the oil. Also, crabs, amphipoda, and mollusks were killed as well. Within a year, natural cleanup processes had removed most of the oil from hard surfaces and decreased the quantities considerably in areas with sand and mud. About three years after the spill, most of the fauna had recolonized the lower sections of the beach and the recovery on the upper sections were well underway. About 10 years after the spill, weathered and underground oil are still present on some beaches. One of the final things we are going to discuss is the effect this war had on those service members. Upon returning home from deployment, many service members reported new symptoms not previously reported prior to mobilization. Termed the Gulf War Syndrome, it is still relatively unknown exactly what is causing these symptoms among those who deployed. It's possible that these symptoms are due to chemical or nerve agent exposure, or it could have been due to the oil fires releasing toxic compounds into the atmosphere. Initial case reports describe nonspecific symptoms such as fatigue, headaches, and rashes that did not fall into the recognized diagnostic categories in the USA. Gulf War veterans were invited to join voluntary medical registries run by the U.S. Department of Defense for those still serving. The Comprehensive Clinical Evaluation Program and the Department of Veterans Affairs for Discharged Personnel. A few individuals did have recognized diseases such as lymphomaniasis, but the majority presented with nonspecific symptoms. Fatigue, headache, memory problems, sleep disturbances, skin rashes, joint pains, and dyspnea were the most commonly reported symptoms in both registries. Three International Classification of Diseases, 9th Revision ICD-9 categories, musculoskeletal disorders at 18.6%, mental disorders, symptoms, and signs at 18.3%, and ill-defined conditions at 17.8% accounted for over 50% of diagnosis in the first 20,000 veterans who participated in the Comprehensive Clinical Evaluation Program. While it is still unknown exactly what caused these symptoms to begin appearing, it is important that those affected be treated properly. War truly brings out the worst in humans. Throughout history, we have witnessed some truly horrifying things such as mass genocide, human experimentation, torture, and even environmental disasters. We must do what we can to preserve what humanity remains. I want to thank you for listening today. If you enjoyed the episode, please be sure to give it a like, download, and follow. Please continue to share the podcast with those around you, because as I always say, it is always better to be prepared. Also, follow me on Instagram at Destination Period Disaster and on Twitter at Dest Disaster. That is D-E-S-T-D-I-S-A-S-T-E-R. Next week, we will be discussing the 2010 Haiti earthquake. Thank you once again for listening. This has been Destination Disaster.